back to our sermon series in uh, the book of Revelation, and we come to this, the second of the letters of Revelation. It is to the subject of Christian persecution that we come. Subject of Christian opposition or Christian persecution. So before I really get into this in any way, shape, or form, what I think I need to do is perhaps get ahead of the opposition or objections that you might have to that, because some of you right now, as soon as I say Christian persecution, some of you might have a question on your lips, right? You might say, is this in any way relevant to us? Like, what do we know? We know that Christians throughout the world are persecuted, don't we? Did you see that recent statistic from the government's report? What was the statistic? Something like uh, uh, over 80% of people persecuted for their faith throughout the world, 80% of those people are Christians. So we know in here right now that throughout the world people are persecuted for Christians. But what's the objection? The might be, but Andy, that's in other places. Look at us. We're a group of reasonably comfortable Christians, apart from seats you're sitting in, of course. Um, we're a group of reasonably, you know, well-off, comfortable Christians in the centre of London. What do we need to know about persecution for? Is this really, is this going to be in any way relevant to your life or my life? I want to deal with that objection in two ways, okay? First one is this, to remind you of what it is that we're doing in this sermon series. So do you remember what it is that Jesus is doing here or not? Jesus is writing letters to seven churches in Asia in the first century world. And what did we say about that number? We said that it was the scriptural number of completion. Did we now? Do you see? Do you see? This tonight is not a letter to one isolated congregation. This is a letter from Jesus to all churches, all congregations in all times, in all places. Do you see what that means? (laughs) We might sit and think, this is not relevant to us. But the Lord Jesus Christ thinks it is. So much so, the Lord Jesus Christ has written a letter about persecution to us at London City Presbyterian Church. Okay? So it's relevant from Christ's perspective. That the second thing we need to consider is the wider biblical testimony. Because if I say the word to you, persecution, Christian persecution, can I ask you, what do you think about persecution? What comes to mind? If you're anything like me, you think about Boko Haram. Or you think about the bombings in Sri Lanka. Do you think that sort of thing? Is that where you go? Or attacks in the Middle East and Christians. Yeah, is that, that's right, yep. And that is Christian persecution. There's no way around it. Of course, that's overt persecution. But isn't it important for us to think about what Jesus Christ says to us in his word? And you might find this interesting. More often than not, when Jesus talks about Christian persecution, he doesn't talk about it in terms of bombings and murder and physical attack. Do you know what Christ talks about more often than not? Christians being ridiculed for the faith. And Christians being hated because of him. And Christians suffering verbal abuse. And now, when you hear that, and you listen to it against the current climate in London and the UK, do you not agree that a sermon on persecution might well be very relevant to us indeed? 
So, you with me, right? We've got it. We're dealing with persecution this evening. We have ticked the box. We know at least we're dealing with. We know from Christ's perspective, this is relevant to you and to me in London. How are we going to tackle it this evening? What are we going to do? Well, this is what we're going to do. God willing, we are going to split the sermon down the middle. We're going to look at two headings this evening. You can think of it like this. We're going to go for the bad news first and then the good news, okay? So first of all, we're going to think about uh, persecution examined, the bad news. Then persecution endured, okay? So we're just going to split it down the middle. Persecution examined, persecution endured, And under this first heading, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the detail in this section of how these Christians were persecuted. We're going to look at the detail of that to see what we can learn, what Christ wants to say to us tonight about living as Christians in London. You get it? We know what we're going to do? Look at the details here. Persecution examined. Okay. You got your Bible there? Has everyone got their Bible? Young and old, let's have the Bible open in front of us. And under this first heading, I want to note four things, briefly, four things about this persecution that we're dealing with here. Okay, so this is the first one. If you're taking notes, we see this, that persecution very often involves economic implications. Persecution involves very often economic implications. So we're, we're ready to go with us. We've got the Bible in front of us. Okay, what's the, what's, what do you think the first thing we need to do is? First thing we need to do is try and just get our heads around this city or the situation. Don't we need to know something about that? So what is the deal with, did you know what's the name of it? Smyrna. What's the deal with Smyrna? Well, Smyrna was a port in the ancient world, a port in Asia, and it was a port that kind of rivaled Ephesus. We talked about Ephesus in the last, in the series, and it's a port that kind of rivaled Ephesus, not just in terms of its significance or importance, but in terms of its beauty. Smyrna was a beautiful place. And I could, on it, I could, I could bore you. I could wax lyrical with how beautiful Smyrna is, and I could talk about all the public buildings and how it gradually rose up from the sea, and it was all beautiful and picturesque. I could go into that, but I'm not going to. I don't need to. What I need you to appreciate is this, that Smyrna was renowned for its loyalty to Rome. Now, does everyone in this room, everyone hear that? So Smyrna, this place we're dealing with this evening, is in Asia. Despite that, it was proverbial in the first century world, a proverbial for its patriotism to the Roman Empire. So we got that. Now, you work with me for a second here. What do you think that would have looked like to the people on the ground in the, in the city, that it was loyal to Rome? What do you think, what difference do you think that would have made? That it was, yeah, it was really loyal to Rome. What do you think? I think it might have meant that they wanted to send their sons off to fight with the Roman Empire, right? You know, to, let's send them off to the army, you know, let's, let's go with the Romans. That might be true. It certainly would have affected how the rule of law was conducted. But this is what I want you to get. That Smyrna was fiercely patriotic, most affected how business was done. In the city, do you see why? 
Like to be part of the vast network of guilds and societies and businesses in, in Smyrna, you had to take part in the imperial cult. Do you, do you see the idea? Like if you wanted to do business in Smyrna at all, you had to sacrifice to Roman gods. And you had to declare that Caesar was God. And you had to give lots of money regularly to the Roman Empire. And if you did not do that, guess what? You weren't allowed to conduct business. You weren't allowed part of the guild. You were ostracized. You were shunned. You were out of there. And when you hear that, doesn't it now make sense of verse 9? Look at verse 9 and what Christ says to the believers struggling in Smyrna. Look what he says. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's tying their persecution to their financial struggles and their financial pain. Do you get the idea or not? Yes, these people were rich in good works. But these people taking a stand for Christ in this patriotic city. What's happened? That had come at a great cost to that Christian community. A great cost. Now, before I move on, let me say this. I think you and I sometimes are guilty of glamorizing Christian persecution. Do you see what I'm getting at there? I think the church can very often sugarcoat what opposition is like. As though, yeah, bring on the persecution. We'll be fine. In fact, it'll be a positive thing for the church. And do not get me wrong at all. Of course, God blesses places of persecution. Of course, he can. But do we not need to be realistic and honest about these things? And can we not this evening apply that situation in Smyrna to ourselves and what can happen in London in the 21st century. And I want to say this to you, and I want you to hear it, that as the United Kingdom becomes increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, so economic implications can become very, very, very real to the Christian church. Did you hear it? As the UK becomes increasingly hostile... So economic implications can begin to bite. And you're not stupid, most of you. And you can see how that works, can't you? The culture changes and society changes against the church. So what happens? Employers change, don't they? And they can get away with more. And employers become less tolerant of Christian symbols in the workplace, don't they? And employers become less tolerant of Christians wanting a Sabbath off to worship. And employers become less tolerant of elders wanting days off to plan and pray. And employers become less tolerant of Christian witness in the workplace. And employers become less tolerant of a Christian taking a moral or ethical stance on particular issues. Do you see the point? We as a congregation cannot be naive about these things. Listen, friends, because it might be true for you in the years to come. Taking a stand for Jesus in London may have, in fact, it may come literally at a cost. So we see persecution has economic 
implications. Second thing we see is that persecution often involves exaggeration and lies. Exaggeration and lies. So are you with me thus far? We've seen something of what the Roman influence in Smyrna, what it looks like. But you must have noticed, did you, in this short reading, there was mention of Jews. Did you notice that? There's a specific mention of Jews in verse 9, and then there's mention as well, specific mention of the synagogue as well. So we've dealt with the Romans. What about the mention of Jews here? What's going on? Well, what I think we've got to understand is that up until this point, you know, that we're dealing with towards the end of the first century, as far as the Romans were concerned, that Christianity had really existed under the umbrella or the rubric of Judaism. Does everybody buy into that? Does everybody understand what I mean? Like up until this point, the Romans hadn't unleashed full opposition to Christianity. Why had they not done that by this stage? Because they thought Christians were just a sort of Jewish sect. And the Romans didn't demand worship from Jews. So they, up until this point, didn't demand worship from Christians. You get it? Now, what are you seeing tonight? You're seeing that things are beginning to change the end of the first century. Wait a minute, Romans are becoming much more hostile to Christians. But this is what I want you to think about and notice here. That the Jews were playing their part. So the Jews were involved in the persecution. The Jews were identifying Christians and handing them over to the Romans. What do you think? I reckon most of you, some of you right now are thinking, tell us something we do not know, Andy. Like The book of Acts is full of Jews being involved in the persecution of Christians. And I, okay, I, I get it. What really fascinates me here, what I love you to see is how God shines a light on this here. Look at verse 9. Look what God does in verse 9. Do you see what he does? He shows you the actual tactic that the Jews were using to persecute the Christians. Look at the tactic. Come on, work, identify it. Come on, do you see it? What does it say? Persecution took the form of slander. Slander. Did you get the idea in the first century in Smyrna? The Jews were, listen to the words, listen. They were misrepresenting the Christians. They were exaggerating Christian belief, slandering Christians. Now, as we bring this forward to us in here, in the room just now, come on. Think about it. Let me, let me ask you, what strikes you about that? predicament christians being slandered misrepresented come on what strikes you about that i mean isn't it an incredible parallel with the situation that you and i face in london i mean mean, think about this is this not true that one of the chief methods that our society uses to attack christianity is the misrepresentation of who you are and what you believe. Isn't that true? One of the chief tactics, falsifying Christian belief, misrepresenting Christian belief. Don't you agree with that? I mean, think about the slander that you face. You, in a way, should be enraged. What does society say about you if you're a Bible-believing Christian? It says you're a bigot. I'm angry about that. Aren't you angry about that? I mean, what slander? And you might, if you've got your finger on the pulse, you might have noticed how language is changing right now. If you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, the language is changing. You are being equated with the far right. 
I mean, are you not outraged by that? Think of the slander. Think of what is thrown at you. You are homophobic. As if, as if somehow I am fearful of homosexuality or fearful of homosexuals. Think of the slander. And what can that mean for us tonight? We could be upset and we could be distressed and we could be alarmed if we do not realize what Jesus is doing at this moment in his word. And what is he doing right now? Reminding us that this ain't nothing new. He is reminding us in his word that slander has been the law of the Christian church since Smyrna, since day one. So there's economic implications. Let's be awake to that. There is exaggeration and lies. Third one, get it if you're taking notes. Persecution is always evil by nature. Always evil. Uh, LCPC is a multicultural, multi-ethnic mess of a place, isn't it? And it makes it very difficult for me to generalize about very much in the church. I cannot generalize about our church because I'll always make a mistake if I generalize. I can generalize right now with this that I reckon all of us love Scooby-Doo. <laughs> That's about the only generalization I can make. I can be confident as I stand in front of you that all of us love Scooby-Doo. Boys and girls love Scooby-Doo, do you? The boys and girls love Scooby-Doo. And there'll be some adults in here who are pretending right now that they don't love Scooby-Doo. But we know, boys and girls, don't we? That they're, that's just not true. And we know, if we love Scooby-Doo, that there is a moment in Scooby-Doo, in nearly every single episode of Scooby-Doo, where what happens? The monster is uncovered in Scooby-Doo. Isn't that right? There's that moment, there's usually a big yeti that's been scaring Shaggy and Scooby. And uh, somebody will lift off the mask of this yeti and reveal the true villain. Isn't that right? And lo and behold, it was the mad professor all along and nobody saw that. Now you might think I'm losing my marbles, but honestly, something like that happens before you in God's word. And I wonder if you noticed it. Twice, not once, twice, the Lord Jesus Christ for you uncovers, unmasks the real origin and the real source of Christian persecution. Did you get it or not? Did you get it? Verse 9, Jesus speaks of Satan. Unmasked. Verse 10, Jesus speaks of the devil, the villain, unmasked. And you and I, uh, yeah, of course, I, we could just, we could skim over that. We usually do, don't we? We don't like to dwell there. We could skim over that and move on. But maybe, perhaps, we shouldn't. Because you know your Bible. We are a Bible-building church. What do you know? That what is true there of satanic work in the church, against the church, true in the first century. And friends, that is true today. In something that I really, as your minister, believe should drive you to fervent prayer this week. You're being reminded by God's word that our society is not just against the church by its own volition, by its own will. You're being reminded tonight that our society is being actively turned against the church. It is being turned. And by whom? By the very evil one himself. Persecution is always evil. And then the last of these, the fourth one, 
persecution can often, listen, persecution can often escalate. It can escalate. Here, um, I, again, it's one of those things where I wish I had entrance into your minds. I would love to know what you are thinking right now. I'd love to know it. As we think about this situation of Smyrna, I wonder if you are thinking that it doesn't sound that serious. Like if you put your feet in the shoes of these Smyrna Christians, because what we talk, we're talking about impoverishment, okay, economic consequences, and we're talking about slander, but maybe some of you are thinking, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones and, and names will, 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 you know, never hurt me or whatever it is. Maybe some of you are thinking like that. Are you? I'd love to know if you think it's not serious. If so, isn't it at least interesting to you to know part of the reason Jesus is writing this letter in verse 10. Have a look at verse 10 and you see part of the reason for writing. And I'm going to say this. I am not going to apply this. I'm not going to apply it. I'm going to leave it hanging in the air lest you accuse me of scaremongering. <laughs> Why does, what is part of the reason that Jesus writes this letter? Do you see He's writing to prepare the Smyrnans for increasing persecution. I'm not going to apply it. I'm not scaremongering. But he writes to prepare them for increasing persecution. Do you notice he does not just speak of some of these people uh, being imprisoned. He says that some of these Christians will be executed for their faith. I will not apply it. But Jesus says throughout his word that persecution very often gets worse okay um you've had the bad news okay i promised you at the start of the sermon that wasn't all bad news okay so the second heading more briefly i assure you as persecution endured we've examined it it's now persecution endured because yes i've said to you that part of the aim here is to prepare the uh, the christians for um increasing persecution hear this that is not jesus main reason for writing this letter and you want to know what that is don't you you want to know why jesus writes this letter harrison does a very effective thing at the beginning of every sermon that he preaches doesn't he it's a good device what does he do you know what he does he says this is the main point of the text and he does that at the beginning great device very effective we know what we're dealing with you want to know what the main point here is don't you why is christ writing this letter listen he's writing this letter to encourage persecuted christians to persevere so how does he do that how does he encourage them and us to persevere in opposition in times of difficulty well i want to throw out a few things for us okay Briefly, more briefly, but let's get them. First is this, there, to encourage us, there is a reminder of Christ's person. A reminder of Christ's person. Have you ever had to choose a birthday card for an elderly relative or an elderly family friend? Have you ever had to do that? Yeah. I had to do that a while back and I was ill-prepared for how much of a nightmare that sort of situation is. That's not as easy as it sounds. And I 
uh, found myself in that supermarket aisle where you've got a million, you know, it's just a bank, a wall of cards. And the job is not just to cho- get a card, is it? The, the job is to choose an appropriate birthday card. And the person that I was having to choose a card for was a free church elder. <laughs> That rules out a lot of the cards, doesn't it? Like that rules out a lot of the partying cards and the champagne cards and, and all the sort of cheeky jokes about age. And I'm standing in the supermarket aisle and scratching my head thinking, how can I get an appropriate card? I need an appropriate thought here. I wonder if you see that that's akin to what you've got in front of you here. See, lots of you were here for the first sermon in this series. I'd love to see a show of hands. Don't do it. But uh, if you were here for the first sermon in the series, do you remember what we looked at? We looked at Revelation 1 and the dramatic vision of the Son of Man. Do you remember that? The, the glorious vision of the Son of Man at the beginning of Revelation. Beautiful, incredible, intricate vision of the Son of Man. Well, I wonder if you realize what Jesus is doing. To begin each one of the seven letters, what Jesus does is he takes one particular part of that opening vision and he inserts it at the start of each letter. Are you following that? So Jesus is in that aisle, that supermarket aisle. And before him is this vision of the Son of Man, and it's intricate and it's wonderful. And the Lord Christ chooses one element, but he chooses the most appropriate element for each of the churches. Now, if you're intrigued by that, what do you want to know? You want to know, well, what element of that vision of the Son of Man does he choose for Smyrna? What's most appropriate for them? Well, look at it, verse 8. You see what he says? To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and look at it, the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life is epic. Think about it, to those persecuted believers and they're struggling and they're opposed. What does Jesus do? What element of the visions does he choose? The one that highlights not just his victory, but the element of the vision that highlights his sovereignty over all of life and all of death and you are an imaginative people and you can imagine can you that letter being read to Smyrna for the first time and they're crying and they're in pain and they're impoverished and they're worried and then it's read out and they are confronted a letter from Christ confronted with sovereignty his victory his victorious over life and death you can imagine it can you don't you see That's happening tonight. Right now, the same thing is happening. Christ, he's engineered that this letter is read out to you this evening. And so I have to ask you, are you a Christian in here who is genuinely worried about the way our society is going? I'm sure that's true of some of you, is it not? Worried, curious, what is this going to mean for us and our work and for our kids and our families and all of that? What? This society is changing. Are you worried and unsettled? Do you not see? Behold your God. In this portion of scripture, Jesus is able to speak about opposition in detail before it happens. Don't you see, Christian friend? Yours is the true God. The true King. The eternal Lord. Omnipotent. Sovereign 
over everything that is going to happen in the United Kingdom. So he reminds them of his person to encourage them. But then he reminds them of his purpose in persecution. Because I moan a lot about the fact that I'm getting old. I know I talk about it too much, but I'm feeling it. People said to me, life begins at 40. Life does not begin at 40. That was a lie. You're over the hill when you hit 40, and it's all the way down from there. And I noticed that this week, because this is what happened in sermon preparation this week. I looked at this. This is not a long section of scripture. I looked at this four times before I noticed what is possibly the most crucial tiny little phrase. So I'm losing it all in old age. Did you notice it, I wonder? Look at verse 10. What a phrase. What a phrase. He says, you're about to be thrown into prison. Why? Did you notice it? That you may be tested. Now, do you see why that is such an important phrase? Do you see what Jesus is saying to the Smyrna's there? He's saying, yes, Satan is at work, but you don't understand. God's going to use this. God is going to use this persecution. God is going to use this opposition of the church. Now, that is wonderful news for us, is it not? Isn't it wonderful news? God uses persecution. He uses opposition. But I want you to understand, it gets so much better. Because from elsewhere in scripture, you can actually know what God is going to do through the opposition of the church. Two things. First verse, First Peter 1. You know this verse, but you think about it. Listen, Peter says to you this. For a little while, you are going to be grieved by trials, opposition, persecution. And we maybe wonder, why is it like this, Lord? Why? And then Peter says that your faith may be proven genuine. And don't you see what God is doing through the opposition of the church? God uses that persecution to manifest your faith, to reveal to yourself and to the world your reliance on Christ. Listen to the words. God uses our present difficulties. He uses it to display our faith. And then there's the second thing. Now, this is Paul in Romans 5. And I know that you know this verse. Think about it. Ready for it? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that what? Come on. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And you see what the Apostle Paul is saying there. He is saying this, that through the opposition of the church... We will be, Christian friend, we will be matured. I mean, isn't that music to your ears? Isn't that a wonderful thought for a moment? God is going to use any opposition the church faces today and tomorrow and next year. Any opposition, God will use it not just to display our faith, but to deepen our reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he encourages us with his person. He encourages us with his purpose. Third one, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. He encourages us with the passing nature of the persecution. Will you work with me? We're nearly there, I promise you. Would you, would you work with me? Would you look at zero in on verse 10 and look at the time reference? And I'll, I'll waken up the boys and girls and get them to help me with this. Okay, so boys and girls, shout out. What is the time reference? For how long were the Christians tested? 
Verse 10. Shout it out. Love it, love it in unison. Ten days. That's a bit odd, isn't it? You don't think so when you read it out? A bit strange. Like, what's going on there that Jesus would specify that it's ten days? Of course, it could be literal. Couldn't it? I mean, it could just be an example of Christ's foreknowledge. And he says, look, I know. I know what's happening. It's all in my hands. It's in my control. It's going to be ten days. And it could be to encourage the believers. It could be literal, right? I need you to understand it could also be metaphorical. What did Harrison read? I bet some of you are ahead of me here. Daniel 1. Daniel 1. Do you, you got the story? Did you? Daniel and his friends are tested by the king, aren't they? And the king wants submission. And the symbol of eating with him was full submission. And they resist. And they are... T- now, what you have to understand is that the early church, around about the first century and onwards, they love to appropriate that story about Daniel and his friends. Like, you can see that, can you? That the early church loved that. They loved it. They saw it as a metaphor of their defiant stand against the powers of the Roman Empire and the powers of the world. They loved that story. And so isn't it really interesting to think back to Daniel 1 and to think about how long Daniel and his friends were tested and faced that time of trial. How long was it? We can guess. Boys and girls could tell me it's unnecessary. It was for 10 days, wasn't it? So this could be metaphorical, but I want to say here, in a sense, it doesn't matter. I mean, either way, if it is literal or a metaphorical 10 days, you see what Jesus is saying to Smyrna. Can you? He says it's going to be 10 days. What's his message to them and to us? That persecution of the church is short. He's saying 10 days. Our eternal Lord, from an eternal perspective, says to us, it is short, the opposition of the church. Short. It is a reduced time period. It is no time at all compared to the glories that await. And that leads me to the last thing tonight. Jesus encourages by his person, his purpose, the passing nature, and then he encourages through the prize. Some of you, I know this to be true. Some of you watched the Champions League final uh, a couple of weekends ago on a Saturday night, didn't you? Some of you watched that. Some of you are delighted. Some of you are devastated <laughs> by that situation. If you've ever watched any final like that in the past, you know what happens, don't you? Like before a massive game like that, what happens? If you watch the game, you'll know this to be true, that they take the trophy at the beginning, there's a bit of a ceremony, and they take the trophy out onto the field, and there's a big plinth, and they take the trophy out, it's usually usually a couple of old football luminaries, and they take the, the trophy out, and they put it on a plinth, and it's, it's, it's you know this big pomp and circumstance, and the two teams have to come out of the tunnel, and they've got to go either side of this big grand trophy and carry on. Why did they do that? Why did they put the trophy out there in front of the two teams? It's obvious, right? Isn't it? I mean, it's to kind of show important this is this big game. It's to remind those two teams what is at stake. It's to remind them what they can win if they win this game. 
In this portion of scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us a couple of amazing reminders of the rewards that lay ahead. I wonder if you saw them. There is a general reward that is promised. Listen, it is promised to you, Christian friend, a general reward. You see it in verse 11, and you, you come on, you should grasp it and rejoice in it. Do you see? As in all the letters, he speaks of a promise for those Christians who persevere. What is it? If we persevere in Christ, we will not be hurt by the second death. Listen, if you are in Christ and persevere in Christ, you will avoid entirely that fiery torment that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. You are set to avoid the second death. But then there is a specific one. That's where, This is where I want to close in the specific one, the specific reward. You see it in verse 10? Let's look at it because I'm... We're closing with it. Let's look at it. Verse 10. It's specific for martyrs. So this is a reward for those who die in the name of Christ, for Christ Jesus. Do you see the nature of it is a promise of the crown of life that God will honor martyrs and death. So let me tell you, as I close, how 99% of sermons on this portion of Scripture end. I've listened to a million sermons on this portion of Scripture and read a million books And 99% of sermons on this section of scripture end in the same way and they end with a story of a martyr. They end, all these sermons end with a story of a man called Polycarp. Have you heard of Polycarp? You have, haven't you? Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And so he's a man that is, is widely assumed was in, that's what I thought, he was in Smyrna, most likely, when this letter from Christ was received and read out. Polycarp was a man who faced persecution throughout his life. Polycarp was a man who stood firm in Christ. Polycarp was a man who was put to death, burnt at the stake. The Jews are recorded as gathering the wood for the fire and bringing it to the Romans. And in his death, Polycarp stood and declared his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Polycarp, a man set to receive the crown of life. And 99% of the sermons end there. And I ain't going to. Because I think you know and I know that the greatest encouragement for us in this society and this age is not to fix our eyes on Polycarp. But our greatest encouragement is what? To fix our eyes on our risen saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because is he not a man who has been persecuted like none other? Think of it too. Economic impoverishment. Slander. Like never before. Satanic abuse. And executed. And hang on, why? Think of it. Why that ferocious persecution? All that you, Christian friend, will never, ever, ever face the opposition of God in judgment. All through his atoning work, you might be tonight set to receive all of the riches and all of the treasures of the gospel in him. We ought to, in a society like this, fix our eyes ever more on Christ. Friends, who knows what's going to happen in the UK? I am not trying to scaremonger. Who knows how it will change? But we will stand firm 
Our hope is in the Lord, is it not? And who is he? Who is he? He is the first and he is the last. He is the one who has died. And amazingly, and hallelujah, he is the one who's come to life again. Friends, let us bow our heads before our God and let us pray.